We turn in God's word then to the gospel according to John chapter 20. The gospel according to John chapter 20. And we'll be reading verses 24 through 29. 24 through 29, encouraging you to leave your scriptures open this morning so that uh, you may see God's word even as we make our way through it. John 20, verse 24, let us hear then the breathed out word of God to us today. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to them, him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Again, let's bow in prayer and ask for God's blessing upon his word preached this morning. Our dear Heavenly Father, like Thomas, we do doubt. When things go bad, when things look really dark, we wonder if you are there. But Lord, we pray that you will give us the wisdom, you will give us the strength, you will increase our faith, and you will help us to face those issues and believe that you are the, indeed the risen Christ. We pray that you will give Pastor Bob the words that he needs, the wisdom, the clarity of mind to convey your thoughts to us. We just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. When I look at these verses 24 through 29 this morning under three major points. One, the circumstances in which this takes place, this conversation. Secondly, the call. And I want us to look specifically at Jesus' words this morning, do not disbelieve, but believe. So the circumstances, the call, and then the comfort. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So what are the circumstances? Well, we're given the time, right? Uh, the passage tells us that uh, we are now eight days later. His disciples were inside again. My guess, however, is that we have a variety of translations present with us this morning. And some of you are going, eight days? No, it's a week later. I've always heard, you're thinking that this was the Lord's Day evening. What's up with this eight days? Nothing's up with the eight days. 
and this is no contradiction, a week later is, by Jewish time, eight days later. It is evening, meaning it is past 6 p.m. So it is, in our way of understanding, the evening of the first day of the week. That's how we would understand it. But in a Jewish context, if you're counting from the time of the resurrection till this exact moment when Jesus appears to the disciples, the way you would count it by Jewish time is it ends up being eight days. So this is no contradiction. We are indeed on another evening of a Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And it's only because of the uniqueness of the way in which Jewish people tell time that we are given the reference of eight days. So both eight days and a week are the same. So here you have one of those nice riddles. When are seven and eight the same? Seven and eight are the same when you're counting time by Jewish time. It's the way it works out. They are together. We learn here, as, as we go through these circumstances then, that somebody was missing the week before. When Jesus appeared to those disciples in, in what we believe was the upper room and came to them with that glorious greeting that we looked at last Sunday morning, peace be with you, one was absent. We don't know why he was absent. We don't know if he had a good reason or a bad reason. We don't know why he didn't show up. We don't know if it's because he was fearful. We don't know if there were other responsibilities. But what we do know and what the scripture is testifying to us is because of his absence, he missed out on a blessing. He missed out on something because he was not there. He was not gathered with the rest of the church. He was not gathered with the other believers on the day that they are gathering together. And it's a good reminder to us. I don't have to beat it, but it's a good reminder to us. That every time we are absent from the Lord's house for worship, we miss out on blessing. Now, many of us experience that. Probably some of you as visitors experienced that two weeks ago as well, right? That, that, that Sunday just wasn't right. Something was missing. It just wasn't the same. Some of you perhaps were in localities where perhaps you, you visited another church, but it wasn't the same. Some of you perhaps turned on Dr. Stanley. It wasn't the same. Thomas missed out. We don't know why. But he missed out on a blessing because he wasn't with God's people. On a first day of the week. On a Lord's day. He was absent. But now he's there. The other disciples have come to him in verses 24, 25. Have witnessed to him. They have testified of their belief. We have seen the Lord. This Thomas, someone as we go through scripture, and, and even if we were just to 
to focus on the, the gospel of John, comes up with some interesting things. In John chapter 11, Jesus is talking about going to Jerusalem and that, that he's going to go to Jerusalem and there he's going to suffer and there he's going to die. Thomas seems to be one of the few who actually hears what Jesus says. He actually hears the words and he turns to the other disciples and says, well, if he's gone, we might as well go to and die with him. At least he got it. He didn't understand the whole concept. But at least he understood that. But it, it's sort of this, this dark, dismal Thomas, isn't it? We might as well go and die with him. Not we might as well go and witness our salvation. Not we might as well go and stay there and witness not only his death but his resurrection. Yeah, we'll go with him, but we're going to die too because he's going to die, so it's us too. Thomas is also the one who in John chapter 14 is kind of the exasperated one. Jesus said, you know, I'm going to go to a place for you and you know the way that I'm going. And Thomas is like, what? You're going? You're telling us we know? We don't know. Once again, not the, and I will come again to take you to be with me. It's, I don't know something, and because I don't know something, and because I can't pin it down, I don't get this. And you know, that same thing comes out here, doesn't it? Listen to the doubt that Thomas expresses in verse 25. The other disciples said, we have seen the Lord. He said, now listen to all the personal pronouns that are used here. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Sometimes, you see, we talk about this as the doubt of Thomas. This is not doubt. This is disbelief. We'll get to that in just a minute. But, but understand what's really going on here. Thomas is making his experience and his action the condition of his salvation. Unless I, unless I, unless I, it's only if I experience this and only if I do this, then I'll believe and of course then be saved. But it's all on him. I'm the one who has to act. I'm the one who has to do something. I'm the one who has to save myself. I'm the one who has to have a certain type of experience or else I'm not saved. It's all on me. Of course, we, we somewhat understand this for Thomas. After all, he was born and raised in Judaism. He, he was born and raised in this idea and concept that was prevalent at the time of Jesus of a works righteousness. I must do, so I must save myself. 
And it's out of that, you see, that, that even at this point, he's saying, it's really all on me. Salvation, faith, it's all on me. And I'm the one, I'm the one, not unlike so many in our day and age today, who place salvation not upon an eternal decree of God, who place salvation not upon the grace of God, who place salvation not upon the mercy of God, but who make salvation continual, con contingent, excuse me, upon their experience, upon their walking forward an aisle, upon their accepting of Jesus Christ, upon their will. That's Thomas. Thomas is expressing in this passage that which we as Reformed people would look at and say, this is nothing but classic Arminian thought. It's got to meet my standards, and it's by my way. And if not by my standards and my way, then there is no salvation. I get to determine it. His doubt. But no. Where this passage ends. Verse 28. Thomas in verse 28 says, my Lord and my God. One of the most wonderful confessions we find in all of scripture. Matching that with, with Peter's. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. My Lord and my God. Now what happens in between those two things. What happens in between Thomas's disbelief of verse 25 and Thomas's confession of verse 28? Well, let me sum it up in a nutshell of four statements. It's nothing he did. Do you notice? He never does that which he says is the condition upon which he will believe. He never takes his finger and puts it in that stigmata hole in Jesus' hand. He never takes his hand and puts it in the side of Jesus. He never does that which he set as the condition. I'll only believe if I do this. He never does it. Yet, his expression is, my Lord and my God. Secondly, note that it's nothing he did, but it is that which Jesus did. He came. He came to Thomas. He came to those men in the upper room. It's not Thomas going, hey, I'm going to search all of Jerusalem and find them. Now there's almost an, an order. But you see what happens? Jesus came. What grace, what mercy. I told you it were three things. 
It's not that which Thomas did. It's that Jesus came and that Jesus spoke. That's what leads us to verse 28. My Lord and my God. Jesus spoke. He spoke those words again. Peace be with you. Yeah, even you, Thomas. Even you. For those of you from last Sunday, take that concept. Take what's going on in the whole of that word, in the whole of that expression. As Jesus comes to those disciples in that upper room on the evening of the first day of the week, upon the day of his resurrection. Now, he comes again to one who has expressed disbelief, peace. Jesus speaks those words of grace, those words of mercy. The word of Christ is spoken. He appears, he speaks, and Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. Now there's many things about what Jesus said in this passage that, that we could focus on. I want you to back up just prior, just prior to verse 28. Thomas answered him. He's answering what? He's answering Jesus' call. That's our second point. You say, what's the call of Jesus? Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. See, Thomas is answering the call of Jesus. Now let me note two things. Do not disbelieve. Do not disbelieve. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? Oftentimes, and, and Scripture will do this too, but, but oftentimes Scripture uses the term unbeliever. Scripture seldom uses the term disbeliever. But that, in essence, is what Jesus is saying here. Don't be a disbeliever. And I started to think about that. What's, what, what is Jesus saying? Why, why doesn't Jesus say, do not be an unbeliever? But he says here, do not disbelieve. And I came up with three things as I kind of dug into what's happening here and the words that are being used. The first thing I noted is that this understanding, this way of Jesus speaking, do not disbelieve, is an active action. Unbelief is kind of passive. You know, when we call somebody an unbeliever, I, I, I think we're, just, we're, we're saying they, they kind of pass over. They, they don't take seriously. They're not paying attention. To disbelieve requires some action. It's an active type thing. It is, a, it is, it is making a determination that I will not believe. Now think about it. Isn't that exactly what Thomas had said to the, to the other disciples? 
I will not believe. He is a disbeliever. It is an active thing. It's not just passive. It's not just some sort of ignorance that he's operating out of. He has been given facts, and he is purposely saying, I want nothing to do with the facts. It is an active thing. He is, as it were, setting the, so the facts aside and turning his back on the facts. It's an active thing Jesus is talking about. It is a willful thing. This is a willful act of individuals who have been given the truth. He is alive, but disbelieve. Setting aside a body of truth that they have been informed of. So maybe we have to redo our vocabulary and make it a little more biblical. Maybe when we use the term unbeliever, we, we have to think more in terms of an, an unbeliever is a person who has rejected, as it were, the God of creation, as Paul speaks in Romans 1. But they have not yet heard the message of salvation. A disbeliever is a person who has heard the gospel, but who willfully turns their back upon that truth. It is a rejection, a willful, intentional, active rejection of the truth of God. Do not disbelieve. That's what Jesus just called Thomas. He just said, Thomas, you're a disbeliever. Thomas had himself said it. Jesus quoted what he said. Jesus knows what he said. Jesus knows what he meant. Here was truth. We saw Jesus. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. And I'll never believe it. I'll never accept that as truth. Active, willful, Rejection of the truth. This is not coerced. This is not forced. This is Thomas saying, I don't want anything to do with the truth. I don't accept it. I don't believe it. He is a disbeliever. Notice Jesus' words. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That, that word but comes back to us again, doesn't it? Huh? The, the Romans chapter 3, we're dead in our trespasses and sin, but God who is rich in mercy. Every time this word occurs, as I've told you so often, <coughs> we are to expect the opposite. We are to expect the unexpected. So rather than being a disbeliever, Thomas, be a believer. 
Now, how's Thomas going to do that? How is that going to occur? How can Thomas go from this active, willful rejection of the truth to becoming one who believes? Oh, I know. He'll put his hand, his finger in Jesus' hand, right? He'll put his hand in Jesus' side. That's what it'll take, right? He has to do something. It's all up to Thomas. It's all on Thomas's shoulders. So here we have to take that beautiful reform principle and use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Go down to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Unless I put my finger, unless I put my hand. No, this is not by your own doing, Thomas. This is not by your own action, Thomas. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, if we take Ephesians chapter 2, go back to John chapter 20, and say, when Jesus says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe, what's happening? One, grace is happening. I can never believe without grace. I can only become a believer by grace. Oh, how important that is this morning. I can't become a believer because of some water on my forehead as an infant. This can't save anyone. And I don't care how much water we had here. I don't care how big the tank, how big the pool, how big the lake, how large the ocean. This is not going to save. Grace saves. Grace that is not earned, that is not deserved, but as Paul said in, Rome, in Ephesians 2, is a gift. A gift that is undeserved, a gift that we don't work for. Yeah, Thomas, I'll give you belief. Tell you what, you put your finger in my hand and then I'll give you the belief to believe it's really me. Thomas, you take your hand, put it in my side, and then I'll give you the belief. You do something, Thomas, and then I'll give you the belief. No. 
to believe is always a gift. Never by works. Never by that which we do. But that belief is always active. That's why Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 is talking about works. It's evidence how? By that which we do. My Lord and my God. See, what happened in that moment, what happened in that instant, is that grace as a gift came to Thomas. He believed, not because of that which he did, but because of that which Christ did. He gave Thomas at that moment a gift, the gift of grace. And Thomas evidences the fact that he has truly received this gift. How? My Lord and my God. See, that, that, that's what this is all about. This is, this is that what we're focused on here. Not that this saves, but that this continually points us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, if it be your will, have converted Hendrick at the moment of his conception. For nothing is impossible with God. Lord, have converted Hendrick when he was three months old in the womb of Ashley. Lord, may it have been your will to have brought about that great rebirth, that gift of grace and faith, at the moment Hendrik came into this world. Lord, may it be your will that, it, that, it, that if possible, at the moment he was baptized, Lord, that then your spirit work. Lord, may it be that when he's five, when he's ten, Lord, may it be that you work in his heart. The gift of faith. See, that Baptism gives us the right to pray that. It gives us the right as God's covenant people to ask God to fulfill the promises of his covenant. That's, what, that's why this is so important. Lord, we look to you to give to our children by grace. That's why we call it a covenant of grace. Give to our children by grace your gift of faith. So that someday they too, as Lord we pray that someday Hendrik will stand. With his brothers, with his parents, with his uncles, with his aunts, with his grandparents, with his great grandparents. And stand and say, my Lord and my God. For Lord, he's never going to get there on his own. Just like none of the rest of us ever did. It takes your grace. 
And that leads, you see, thirdly, to this beautiful comfort. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You'll be blessed. You'll be under God's divine approval. You will be under God's goodness. God will be extending His benefits of the covenant to you. God promises to be a God to you and to your children after you. Oh, the blessing of grace. But Jesus is saying something more. When you actually look at this, what, what's really going on is, is Jesus is, is, as it were, saying, to paraphrase, Thomas, you've come to faith. That's great. Took me showing up, but it's okay. You're blessed. How much more blessed, Thomas, are those who don't have to have the physical, tangible, rational, reasoned proof to believe? How much more? You know, when I hear Jesus say that, I think, do you understand who he's talking about there? That's us. That's, that's you and me. That's what we pray someday for Henry, for each of our children. That they come to believe. Not because they've seen tangible evidence. Because you know the next time you're going to see Christ, it's too late to believe. The next time you see Christ, oh, you're going to, everybody's going to believe. The next time Christ comes, everybody's going to believe. Every eye shall see him. Every eye shall behold him. But no more blessing. No more opportunity. No more grace. No more gifts. When he comes and every eye beholds him, only those, you and I, who believe without seeing him are blessed, more blessed, greatly blessed with all the blessings. God's covenant promises to us. Friends, for the rest of the day, just, just dwell upon the fact that God has been so merciful, so gracious, so giving, that he has given to you faith in an unseen Christ. And that for all of eternity, you now have the assurance, the promise of the one who is the king of kings, 
the one who is your redeemer, the one who lives and rules and reigns forever and ever. You are more blessed. And God's people said, Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, for the call of Christ to Thomas, for the great work of faith that you worked in the heart of Thomas, so he'd cry out, my Lord and my God. Father, how gracious you are that you give us today. That if there are any, Father, even here this morning, who have not ever proclaimed out of a sincerity of heart, out of a sincerity of faith, that you give them today to cry out to the unseen Christ, my Lord and my God. And Father, pour out your grace on the hearts of your children, young people, of ourselves, of our neighbors, of our friends, of our co-workers. So that others become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. But Father, not just others, but that we too, we too, might follow you all the days of our life. And then into eternity. In Christ's name. We as God's people say. My Lord. And my God. Amen. And amen.